This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Juliette Kayyem. She is a national leader in homeland security and crisis management. She is currently the Robert and Renee Belfer Senior Lecturer and Faculty Chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She is a national security analyst for CNN, where she has been described as CNN's go-to for disasters. She is a frequent contributor to The Atlantic. She has a weekly security segment on NPR's Boston Station. She's written two popular books, Security Mom and The Devil Never Sleeps, which you'll hear us talk about today. And she previously served as President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernment Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. So I hope you really enjoy this discussion. Discussion. Juliette, thank you for passing judgment with us. I want to talk about your two excellent books, but first I want to get right into world events. And I know you've written and spoken about what's happening in Israel right now. I think it was just a few hours after the terrorist attacks of October 7th, you wrote a piece in The Atlantic. And it was entitled, How Did Israel Not See It Coming? And in my view, you really accurately said, this is not just an intelligence failure, it's an everything failure. We're now almost two months away from that piece what else have we learned about how this happened? Yeah. Um, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm thrilled uh, to be on and glad that we could finally get this together before the holidays or in between the holidays, both of us <laughs> dealing with life. Um, my life works in a way, you know, I get a, I get a 5 a.m. phone call on a Saturday morning because I'm, I'm seeing CNN senior national security analyst, even though this or Millie's is not my main focus. I, as I say, I do mayhem for them, for them. And they have me on air by six o'clock. I didn't know what had happened. And they said, check your emails. And so in some weird way, I was, I, I had the luxury of sort of not having a lot of stuff. It just like I had the headline hit me and I work a lot in the field of preparedness and intelligence and in training. I train a lot of uh, Israelis in, in mostly preparedness on intelligence stuff. And, I've, you know, I've been impressed with their professionalism and how the country is structured and it's, you know, mandatory service, all the things that we know. And so the first thing that hit me is, you know, WTF, not, not from the Hamas perspective, because everyone knows what Hamas wants to do, right? If, how could a, a thousand terrorists organized by land and sea and air, right? That those images to terrorize Israelis, kill them, abuse them, rape them, everything that we saw, we didn't even know some of those details yet, take them hostage. And then as I was writing this piece, there were still parts of Israel that were under the control of Hamas. And that takes a level of sophistication on Hamas's part that may be state-sponsored, may not be, but it require it's not luck. You're not able to do that by luck. And, and what was also clear was the response was incredibly slow. So everyone was talking about an intelligence failure by then. How did Hamas do this, plan this without a wife, a sister, a family member, or even 
covert operation discovering it, uh, but also why did it take so long? So what we've discovered, as we always do in these cases, we discovered this with 9-11, is there were people warning. And it wasn't just the United States. It wasn't just Egypt. It was actually, now we've learned in the last week that it was Israeli IDF. Uh, intelligence officers and all woman uh, intelligence um, unit uh, that had their ear to the ground as as a lot of these all female uh, units do uh, and had been warning. So we're going to find out over time how much was accessible to Netanyahu. Remember, Netanyahu is in a fight for his life now, so he has actually just completely closed off lessons learned right now. He is like, well, we're not dealing with it now because we have the war, which may be fair. The response seems to me, at least what we've learned, the slow response was, and if I blame Netanyahu, I do. It's not that I'm not blaming Hamas, but but in this part of the narrative, how could this happen? So to keep his coalition together, we now understand that Netanyahu essentially divided up pieces of the IDF as sort of concessions to the ultra-right-wing cabinet and parties that he needed to be able to come back into power. Well, anyone who knows, as you've read my books, you know, you know, I like Kumbaya and everyone getting along, but at some stage you do need command structure. And it just appeared that that command structure fell apart. It was a holiday. Lots of reasons why. That that the stories that we have now are like, you know, these these retired generals were jumping into their car to go save people. So I think we're going to learn a lot more that after action has been sort of closed off. But I do think it relates to what's happening now. We were talking before about personal feelings and our and our histories. And, and, I, and I wrote in The Atlantic a second piece because the first one was criticized for seeming to criticize Israel. It was not its intention. I, I do these things rather unemotionally, but also later on criticized Rashida Tlaib, the congresswoman, and, and language that's being used by both Jewish groups here, uh, Israeli politicians, Palestinian groups here. And it's, you know, it's sort of a nod to the language of what I call annihilation, which is simply thinks that the solution will be some some group of people are going to go away. Well, you know, the Israelis aren't going away. The Palestinians are not going away. Like, and the Arabs aren't going away. So someone better figure this out. But I do think that the story we're confronting now, two months later, is a very different story. It's twelve to 13,000 Palestinians dead. We're, we're right now talking in the midst of, of the hostage negotiations being extended. Maybe this is part of, a, of an end game in a good way. But it never struck me, I'll end with this, that the country that so fabulously had this intelligence failure, how it could turn around and claim that its attacks in Gaza were strategic seemed like a big gap to me, right? I mean, here you, you missed a thousand guys come, you know, planning something over the border. And now you're telling me one week later, you're going to have strategic uh, evisceration of Hamas. And I think the numbers prove that that wasn't the intent. And that's, that's really hard. Um, that's a hard, hard thing to see. It's a hard thing to to justify in a world, well, you're a lawyer, you know, in a world in which, you know, proportionality matters. Well, and you just said something very important, I think, which is Israel isn't going away. Palestine isn't going away. And you talked about just now trying to eviscerate Hamas, Israel trying to eviscerate Hamas. And in your view, is Hamas going away? It could have. I mean, I want to you know rewind, rewind it. So 
I didn't just wake up to this issue. You know, we have personal reasons for it. I've got professional reasons for it. There was polling done in Gaza maybe about a week or two weeks before the attacks, uh, the attack in October. It showed Hamas was exceptionally unpopular. Terrorist groups are horrible governing groups, and people really do care about their trash and their taxes. I mean, Gaza's a horrible, as people are now discovering, Gaza was, it wasn't a, it was a city. I mean, it's a, it's like, you know, it's a dense and lots of vibrant activity. And, and they were wildly unpopular amongst the Arabs and the Palestinians in the week after as everyone's waking up really what like what was this like and you know and and I think they underestimate or they overestimated Iran's interest in starting a regional war I think they thought that they could get Iran much more engaged than they did so they made all these miscalculations I think if Netanyahu had paved a way for the Palestinian Authority to come back in because it can't be Israel no one can please like that's not going to happen and they're gonna realize you can't occupy some other governance body you may they may have been able to do it then they may have been able to get iran and other countries to concede to it given what has unfolded i think now it's harder to say that i think hamas is probably more popular because people don't like losing 20 family members and that's like a real problem that we are all going to have to confront which is have we gotten rid of the alternative an important question that i don't know that we can answer today. And I certainly want to get into both of your books, The Devil Never Sleeps and Security Mom. And so I think I want to leave our discussion of the Middle East by saying, I know that you have talked about how connectivity has changed disasters and catastrophes and how we should respond to those disasters and catastrophes. And obviously, in a lot of ways, we are more connected to what's happening in the Middle East than we used to. And I think people, obviously, this varies by people's personal experience and personal background. But are there concrete ways where you want people living in this country to understand this is why what happened in Israel is also affecting us? Yeah, yeah, I think I may. I think that's, that's right. And I, I just as an aside, I'll do that. You know, I, I also I'm on the faculty at the Kennedy School in Harvard, sort of grand bullseye. I don't know what we are right now. Yeah, we've been, it's been a hard semester. I just taught my last class. I told you, and there's a rawness about this that the students are carrying, and let alone the faculty and the and the funders that I've never experienced before. And I think part of that is the imagery. Whether it's Al Jazeera, you know, I watch Al Jazeera. I watch more conservative TV. The image imagery is really hard to put in perspective. And in some ways, this is you know, does this fall outside of what I write about? In some ways, although I do think, I guess I did write something though about this as a way to think about it. So the book is the, the Devil Never Sleeps is, is is premised on a notion. Of, I've been in disaster management and preparedness a long time now. I started off in counterterrorism on a premise of like, how do we measure success? Like this was always the challenge because like I'm in a world in which you know bad things are happening, and if you sort of have the gloom and doom, like you know, oh, why can't we be you know all this or like why can't we be like this? Like we're not going to be like this. Like that's not that's not who we are. And so I have this concept of what's called the boom, which is just, you know, that disruptive event and left a boom is good. The bad thing hasn't happened and you're trying to stop it from happening. And then right a boom is, yeah, the devil has come. And, and I've struggled throughout my careers or like, how do you measure success? Like I, I'm part of things that are viewed as horrible, right? Like, you know, H1N1 or the, what I did during COVID for mayors and governors or, or the BP oil spill. And it's like, you know, I, they're like on my bio and I'm like embarrassed by them because everyone views them as like absolutely horrible. And I'm trying to like say, well, here's my measure of success. And so the measure of success is the mathematical less bad. In other words, if we can learn to f- 
fail safer. There's lots that we can do, and I take the lessons of lots of disasters to learn to do that um, and to learn to fail safer uh, so that our, our measure of success isn't, you know, good and bad. It is just less bad. And that's a way to think about disaster management. And so my pursuit of preparedness and thinking about preparedness is, look, this won't stop the bad thing from happening. And I would like the bad thing not to happen. I'm not fatalistic. It's just that with, in the book, eight small investments or thinking throughs or whatever, you can fail, one can fail safer. And I I did apply this to the Middle East conflict because, I mean, I have criticisms with the Biden approach and, and, and the push for humanitarian aid. But when I think about what I thought was about to unfold on that Saturday, bad would have been a regional conflict. So I'm going to measure less bad this way um, and and think about what didn't happen as a way to judge the policy. Because I'm not getting back to before the Hamas attack. I wish I could, but I'm not. We're on the right side of the boom, to use your language. Yeah, the right side of the boom. And it's and it's agnostic. So the book, like you know, the the, the boom or the devil are agnostic because, you know, you if you focus on terrorism, then the hurricane comes. You focus on hurricane, then the pandemic comes. If you, that it really, I wanted to sort of create the connective tissue that would help us see all these different devils as manageable, not stoppable, manageable, better, failing safer uh, with sort of key, key investments and, 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 um, and looked at those so that we could, you know, measure success um, in that way. I should say the book, the, as you know, the, the second part of the title, uh, the title is The Devil Never Sleeps. It, it was said to me by a very religious woman who had been in Joplin, Missouri in a tornado. And, and she was very optimistic about the road ahead as they prepared for the next tornado. And I said, how are you like this? Very faithful. And she said, look, I live in Missouri. There's going to be more tornadoes. She said, the devil never sleeps, but he only wins if we don't do better next time. Meaning she anticipated more tornadoes. As we should. And I think that's one of the things that's so helpful from the book. Again, the full title, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters, out in 2022, now out in paperback and ebook. And the book spends a lot of time talking about what I found actually very soothing in the sense that let's not pretend that disasters and catastrophes won't occur. Let's redefine what success is. And I could continue to talk to you about current events and how the book and the new paradigm that we should use that you talk about in The Devil Never Sleeps should be laid onto world events. I just read a book review that called it the Kayim Doctor, and I was like, okay, now I can retire. Like, no one knows what it is, but like, if five people know that there's like, I was like, so excited. I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. Okay, that's my question then. What is it? It is uh, the, that the standard of success is failing safer, that in an age of recurring disasters in which the harms are cumulative, we can no longer view our, our need to prepare as, as um, anything but the equivalent of stopping the bad thing from happening. And so how do we do that? I think people listening are going to think... Yeah, they want the tools. Yeah. They want... Well, and they want to know, are we relying too much on our government? which my sense is yes. Do we rely too much on private leaders? And what what can we, I mean, to begin with, I think, I know we had to have a, really just a few minutes. What can we do at home? 
so that's like was really the focus of my first mainstream book. Like you, I do like the, I, I said, I do a few books that no one reads from for academic presses, but these are my mainstream books. Security Mom was my first book, and that came out almost immediately after I left the Obama administration. My kids were younger, um, and it was thinking about ways to describe preparedness that might be accessible to the the security mom, so to speak, and and dad. Part of that was a very strong commitment in my career that you have as well, that the the privilege of having an expertise also comes with the responsibility to try to explain it in a non-expert manner. And I do that on TV and the Atlantic and, and on radio. And I, and I think it's important. And I think people in my field in particular really feed off of the fear and they, and they don't give humans agency. That's like a big theme in both books. Like we have agency, like we don't have to just sit here and complain. So what, what are those? So this, this is true for both books. So there's two things you're going to want if you get the disruption. Okay. So the first is essentially uh, what I call family unification. And it is, it is a core aspect of what we've seen now in active shooter cases, but it's a core aspect of almost any planning right now, which is, which is, and the order has been pulled. So when a disruption happens, here's what's going through your head. Where are my kids? Where are my parents? Honest, okay, this is going to be funny to spouses. Where is my pet? People are so tight. And then it's generally, where's my spouse? It's not because you don't love your spouse, but it's because people tend to think that their spouse is equally able to care for themselves, right? So you're, you're worried in that order. So if you can think through you know, various scenarios. And this is just a thing, you know, what would you do? Does your kid know? You know, we, we sometimes don't educate them. I remember a, a, a moment that I, I think I described in the book, like we were in Europe with the kids when they were younger. And all of a sudden I said to them, where are we staying? Cause I wanted, and they were old enough to know, like maybe like 11, nine and seven. And like, they all go the hotel. I was like, okay, here's the name of the hotel. Like, you know, like, you just like, you know, you, give people some context. So doing that and, and what the expectations are at that moment, I, I have a, you know, I think people worry too much about their pets, but that's, I have kids, so I, I'm not so, dep- I also have a dog, uh, but I always tell the story, the dog always survives. Like, you know, it's always the, the owner who did something stupid to get the dog. So that's the first. The second, and I describe this in both books, but right. just in different ways. The second is what we call situational awareness. And that, that to me, if, if you could give me anything and a disruption, it is like, what is going on in real time? Now, is it, some of this is a government function. Twitter used to be good at this and I'm sorry about its demise. I went off of it recently. Like, you know, you, you know, it used to be good of like real, yeah, yeah. Real time information. Now follow me on threads now. I'm trying, I'm trying, although I'm enjoying life without that much social media Um, and thinking about what is happening so that you know what to do. And some of this is dependent on, on uh, government, but others are mechanisms that you can set up in place. I always, you know, I always tell people like you, you can inform yourself and all sorts of apps, like, you know, early you're in California, you should have the early alert earthquake app. Oh, I do. Yeah. Good. Seven seconds, you know, seven seconds going to buy, buy you a lot of time. I grew up in, in California. I'll add a third thing just on the personal stuff and people who listen to podcasts like yours or who follow you and stuff like, if we don't prepare, we are the people who are going to get public safety resources. We know the way the world works. We are noisier. We are richer. We are louder. We are politics are uh, we're more aligned with with uh, the powerful and politics. So if we don't do it, 
our obligation to those who can't is that we try to relieve public safety resources. So I'm going to make it easy. What, what do we generally think? So think of California. So we call it 72 on you, um, which is like just think through 72 hours if you have the resources where you're just not going to be able to call anyone, right? You're just home with the family. And we know that we're, it's easier now because of COVID. We know what that may look like. And think about it that way rather than gloom and doom or whatever. It's totally accessible. So what does that mean for water? One gallon per person per day. Do the math, right? You know exactly what that looks like. So now you have water. I've, I've, I've now bought you a little bit of peace of mind, right? And and the chances are that anything lasts three days is incredible. And in, in humanitarian and disaster relief, we say nine meals till anarchy. And the general sense is people, if they are prepared, can last about 72 hours without assistance. Very rare would anything last 72 hours or as I like to say, like 90% of the stuff won't last seven, it won't last 72 hours. So, but it, you can own your peace of mind and then think about food and medicines and other things like that. It's easy. I, you know, I, I was just downstairs getting the Christmas stuff up and I, you know, just looked at the provisions. Is everything okay? It's peace of mind. Next time I'm at Target, I probably get a little bit more of something and less of something else. That is it. And I have the resources to do it. And so I should do it. I'm looking to the left at the many blue water cans that I have stored in various places around the house because we, of course, live in earthquake country. And that's a little thing that I can do. You can do it. And I think that's exactly right. And, you you know, you can give yourself seven seconds, right? I mean, in other, that's the situational awareness, because as I described in the book, if you live in a world I do where you're going to assume the boom's coming, I don't know when, I don't know what it is. So the crash landing's coming. So I only have two options, right? One is be ready for the crash landing. And the other is, as I say in the book, or extend the runway, right? So give yourself more time to be ready for it. And that's what seven seconds in an app can give you. You, you would be begging for those seven seconds otherwise. And I always say that. So 72 on you just gets you time until panic. Um, and that's a good thing. Juliet Kayam, you have to go of Kayam of the Kayam Doctrine of Harvard, of CNN, <laughs> of the Atlantic, of NPR. I swear I'm done. I'm done. I was like, you know, but thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you.